The FinCEN files reveal that the whole system that should prevent money launderers to use the international financial system is completely broken. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. Did you recognize the voice you just heard? If so, you have been a very loyal Kickback listener for the last 18 months. After having him on the sixth episode, it is our great honor to welcome Frederik Obermeier back on the podcast. Frederik is the managing editor of the investigative journalism desk at the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung and he is also a member of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or short ICIJ. He has been a key figure in breaking some of the most known stories over the last years, including the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers or the Strache case. For his work on the Panama Papers, Frederik received the Pulitzer Prize back in 2016. In this episode, Niels Kürbis and I almost exclusively talk with Frederik about the FinCEN files, what they are, how they were investigated, what they reveal and what their social implications might be. It was a lot of fun recording this interview with him and we hope you will like it as well. Before we jump directly into the conversation, I will quickly introduce a few abbreviations that we use throughout the interview. FinCEN is short for Financial Crimes Enforcement Network and SAR stands for Suspicious Activity Report. If you like what we do here at Kickback, please leave us a positive review wherever you get your podcast from And follow us on Twitter and Facebook under at KickbackGAP. Now, over to the interview. Frederik, it has been almost one and a half years since our first interview here on Kickback. And it's so great to have you back on the podcast. So the last time you and Matthew spoke, much of the conversation evolved around the topic of the Panama Papers, for which you, of course, received also the Pulitzer Prize. Now we are back here on the podcast talking about another substantial data leak. This time it's the so-called FinCEN files. Maybe to start us off, could you tell us and our listeners a little bit about why is it called the FinCEN files and what they essentially reveal? The FinCEN files are actually a data leak that was leaked to U.S. reporters from BuzzFeed News. It's a, a trove of documents from the U.S. Treasury, or to be completely correct, uh, of the, an authority called FinCEN. That's basically, um, as your U.S. listeners um, will know, but international listeners not, that's basically the authority where banks have to report suspicious money transfers too, so that authorities can then act and start investigations. The, the original FinCEN files are basically more than 2,000 of those so-called suspicious activity reports, which were then also other media outlets added other documents that were leaked to them or that they got through FOIA requests um, to this leak. So in the end, it was basically an investigation on anti-money laundering activities of banks, of authorities worldwide, not only focused on the U.S. Great. Could you maybe give us a concrete example of, uh, of what you found in the FinCEN files? I mean, I, I skimmed through it a little bit and there is so much to talk about, but maybe pick out one that maybe surprised or shocked you the most. 
What shocked me the most is that the FinCEN files reveal that the whole system that should prevent money launderers to use the international financial system is completely broken on basically all sides. Normally, authorities point their fingers on the banks, and then vice versa, the banks point their fingers on the authorities. But the FinCEN files shows that basically on all sides, there's huge flaws. Just to give you one example, in the US, a bank is... Uh, obliged to report suspicious activity or a suspicious money transfer within 30 days to the authorities. But what we see in the FinCEN files is examples where it took months. So the average time frame in, in the FinCEN files is roughly six months, so half a year that passed between the suspicious transaction and the report. But we even saw examples where it took by far longer. For example, one case of the BNY Mellon Bank, there took 6,666 days, that's 18 years from a suspicious activity to the report. You don't have to be a money laundering or anti-money laundering expert to realize that within this time frame, the money, money will definitely have moved on. There's no chance for authorities to chase or track down this money after 18 years. That is shocking. Uh, at the same time, you know, the economist in me is wondering, like, what is the incentive structure there? And where do you think are there are problems in the incentive structure when it comes to the FinCEN files? Well, there you nail the problem on its head because the incentive for banks to report suspicious activities is on the one hand side, there's the incentive that they w do not want to be fined because in the past, huge international banks have been fined for not reporting suspicious activities, for flaws in their um, compliance system, or for breaching sanctions. If you take, for example, HSBC, they had to pay uh, nearly $2 billion uh, in fines um, because they provided services to international money launderers, to uh, drug cartels in Mexico, and uh, they helped breaching sanctions. But in the end, if you speak to the bankers themselves, they tell you one thing. It's like there's basically two fractions within a bank. There's the one, the front desk. They are the ones who are dealing with the, the customers. Managers who run those front desks, they are normally have a, within their contracts a huge bonus system. So the more customers they have, the more those customers transfer, the higher their bonus. On the other hand side, you have the compliance or anti-money laundering departments in the banks. They are the ones who are always scrutinizing those customers and are scrutinizing the money transfers. So they basically are the ones who have to tell the front desk, hey, don't take this customer. I think he's suspicious. We run the risk of being fined. And there you see already the problem within the bank. On the other hand side, it's, we have to be aware that banks basically report their own customers to authorities. And they never tell. I mean, they're obliged to keep this one secret. They don't tell the customers, hey, we just reported you to the authorities. They have to keep it secret. But of course, the incentive to report your own customer and running the risk of losing this customer is not that high, in my opinion. And that is also one reason that experts are regularly pointing out that, yeah, there is a certain incentive structure to report suspicious uh, customers. But on the other hand side, as long as it's, as, as it's only the banks who have to pay the fines, the bank as the institution, for the individual banker or anti-money laundering expert, 
the incentive not that high to report customers. And maybe coming back to a concrete example, what was one case that you found within the files? I, I read a lot about there were drug traffickers involved, but also Russian oligarchs that, uh, that tried to circumvent uh, sanctions that were imposed on them. What was one case that really stood out from your perspective? There's one example I was personally interested in because several years ago I worked on a um, project that was called SwissLeaks. That was basically a project on internal uh, documents of HSBC. And already at that time, HSBC was notorious for dealing with shady figures. But HSBC always, after paying huge fines, told the public, told the authorities, hey, this is the past. We are doing by far better now. Um, we have better systems in place we will prevent those stuff to happen again. But yet in the FinCEN files, you see examples of HSBC still doing business with very shady figures. And you also see the communications between different HSBC branches, where example, anti-money laundering experts of HSBC in the US approach their counterparts at HSBC in Hong Kong and ask them, hey, you have those companies that are transferring huge amounts of money Could you please provide us with some data on those companies? Do you know who's the, uh, the UBO, the ultimate beneficial owner of those companies? And HSBC Hong Kong basically, in a nutshell, answered like, well, we have no information on this one. So it means that a bank, is in this case, is or was transferring hundreds of millions of dollars for a company where they don't even know who is behind it and wonder what? In the end, it turned out that this company um, is suspected to be one of the uh, companies being involved of one of the bigger laundromats um, that helped to funnel huge amounts of money uh, out of countries like Russia. So that shows you that the, what HSBC is telling the public and the authorities and what is going on within their company, there's a huge difference. There's a huge gap of nice words and, in my opinion, bad behavior. That's, that's interesting and shocking at the same time. And it seems almost like a reoccurring tale. And it sort of raises one question. Why is it so difficult to hold banks or especially individual bankers accountable? I think we have to face the facts and the facts show you that in the past, several of even authorities and politicians still argued that there are certain banks that are so big and so important for the international financial system that they are not only too big to fail, uh, but they're also too big to be indicted. If you would indict those banks, you would in the end have to basically ban them from access to the US banking system. And that would, in the end, mean losing the status of an international bank. Because if you're a major worldwide operating bank that is not able to access the U.S. Um, financial system anymore, you're not able to transfer dollars. That means basically you shrinking to, to being a, a regional bank like in Germany, the Sparkasse. Yeah, I'm, of course, also very interested in your perspective as an investigative journalist. So maybe to start us off, you have been involved in so many very important leaks over the last years and made yourself very uh, important name with regards to the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, and so on. So in what way do the FinCEN leaks or files, in what way do they differ from those previous leaks? Well... 
I think it's the nature of the documents, um, because what we saw in, for example, the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers was internal documents of financial service providers, of those, in many cases, law firms that provide or help crooks to set up shell companies and hide behind those uh, shells. What we do see in the FinCEN files is basically what the banks report to the authorities and what they they themselves think about their customers. And I think that's interesting because so far in the past, we have always, when we approached banks on customers that, for example, appeared in the Panama Papers, they were basically telling us, well, we have a perfect and very good system in place to prevent uh, crooks um, using the services of our bank. And we, our customers are scrutinized carefully there may be some black sheep, but we will find them and that's it, problem solved. What we do see now is that international banks do every year um, transfer hundreds of billions of dollars from four people, four companies that they themselves already think are suspicious. That shows you the whole extent of this dark money flows all around the world. If even the banks uh, do think this is suspicious uh, activities and the banks are by far not that good as they claim, that's what we also see in the FinCEN files. Sometimes they're not even, obviously are not even Googling their customers because sometimes if you put in the name in Google or other search machines, one of the first 10 um, results would be something connected to money laundering. That is a huge red flag if there's already news reports on a customer being suspected of being in money laundering. That should be the first thing that a bank is doing. But still, we do see several cases where they haven't even done this very basic first step. That's a step where you don't have to be an expert. You don't need super expertise. It's like, hey, type in a name in a search field and perhaps add money laundering or something like that. And I, Come on, that's what my, my, my little child can do. And even that one is what some banks don't do in every case. Yeah, this is a great point. And I think uh, most of our listeners really value the work that you're doing and are grateful for all the, the things that you shed light on. But very few probably know how the process actually takes place. Maybe you could walk us through, you as an investigative journalist, How do you deal with these data leaks? What happens once you receive uh, the data, in this case from, from BuzzFeed, and walk us through the process that you and your colleagues at ICIJ go through? I hope I don't disappoint your listeners now because investigative journalism is no rocket science, to be honest. Um, that's something that you can learn how to deal with, for example, such amounts of data. So in this case, It was BuzzFeed News approaching the ICIJ. That's the consortium. Um, in the past, my newspaper, my outlet worked uh, on the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers and told them about the data they have in their hands. Then ICIJ made this data um, searchable. They basically put it on an encrypted platform where other journalists could access the data and search it, like, like Googling. It was really like you have a search field and you can type in a name, a time frame within you want to search, And then you see the documents where this name pops up and then you can download um, the document. So that's basically the first step. Then ICIJ organized a group of more than 400 journalists um, to work on this data. This was trusted journalists 
that already in the past had worked on the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers. And one of the first things ICIJ did was organizing a meeting. So keep in mind, this was the pre-COVID-19 times. It was still possible to meet with uh, 200 journalists. And we met by coincidence uh, here in Germany because many of the journalists were here already for an investigative journalist journalism conference in Hamburg. So many of us stayed a little bit longer and we discussed what BuzzFeed has in their hand. And then we basically divided work. Who is focusing on which aspects? So for example, in our case, um, for the German team, um, we of course focused a lot on Deutsche Bank because Deutsche Bank uh, is big in the Fensenfalls and it's headquartered in Germany. So of course, this was of huge interest for us. Then you have also personal interest. My personal interest, for example, was HSBC because I worked on them in the past. And then ICIJ had set up something they call it the iHub. You can compare it to Facebook for journalists. It's an encrypted platform where we have different groups where, for example, we had one group on Deutsche Bank and every journalist around the world who found something on Deutsche Bank posted it in there. I did read it regularly, regularly meaning once or twice a day. And as soon as I've read something that is interesting for me, I did uh, go back to the data search for new clues, uh, speak with sources, double check it with even authority sources, informants, and then putting this or posting it in the forum as well. And thereby you basically are building a knowledge base of 400 journalists all around the world. That's a super big newsroom of specialists. And that's the, the, the huge potential of those international collaboration because it's not one journalist, Frederick Obermeyer sitting in uh, his office in Munich and working on a case, but it's 400 journalists. And even if every journalist only adds a little aspect, in the end, you have a very good comprehensive view on each case. I think that's very interesting, Frederick, because uh, for one, I think it's really laudable and impressive how coordinated ICIJ is working, how you manage to always publish these leaks at one specific time with a very coordinated publication strategy. As an academic, I wish we had the same abilities to work together and, and not so much each, everybody in their own individual asylum. At the same time, I wonder, how did you manage to decide how much to, to actually leak and reveal? Because you only revealed a, a small portion of the, the SARS, the so-called uh, suspicious activity reports. And um, many are sort of thinking about, well, What is actually the scope or the size of the global industrial money laundering? So for one, if you could briefly comment on how you within the ICIJ made that decision. And then second, maybe speculate on the actual size of global money laundering. Well, in regards to making the SARS public or available to the public, we had certain restrictions because due to US law, you're forbidden from um, making SARS um, public. So that means bankers are not allowed to publish a SAR. The same thing, at least some experts um, argue, applies to journalists. I have a more critical view on that because I think as long as a SAR is in the public interest, that's the job of us journalists. That should, that's press freedom. So that's what we should do. But we did carefully ask ourselves the question, which SAR needs to be published to basically prove our allegations. And we did only make parts of SARS 
available to the public, keeping in mind that um, this is basically the report of a suspicion. If a banker reports a customer of being an alleged money launderer, that doesn't yet mean he's a money launderer. So we did only publish cases and parts of SARS where we, through our own research, research outside the SARS, were able to find more evidence and more hints that allowed us to report on these cases. So there are many cases in those SARS that we didn't report because we didn't find proof for the allegations outside the SARS. And speaking about the scope, we are well aware of the fact that what we have seen in the FinCEN files is only a very small portion of all SARS um, that are out there. So in the US, it's, if I remember correctly, around about 2 million SARS that are filed um, each year. And we reported on 2,000. And that is basically the nature of the data. But because where do the, the SARS come from? They, as far as we uh, know, are part of the data that Robert Mueller collected. So we didn't have an access to basically all SARS filed within the, a certain time period. What we do see is we are basically able to glance through a small window to see or to get an impression what is going on. But what we already do see through this small window is shocking, in my opinion, because it shows you how easy it is for crooks and criminals to use banks to transfer their money around the globe. And for me, it is also shocking because money laundering seems to be very technical. If I speak with friends and family about money laundering, they're always bored. But if I speak with them about murderers, about uh, weapons dealers, drug dealers, human traffickers um, that I investigate, they're always like, oh, oh, tell me more. That's interesting. But we have to connect the dots because it is human traffickers, it's weapons dealers, it's drug dealers who launder their money. Without money laundering, they wouldn't be able to spend their illicit profits. So that is something we always have to keep in mind. Although money laundering seems to be, um, <laughs> seems to be far away, to be honest, seems to be very technical. It's, all, it's only about money. But no, it's not only about money. It's about drugs. It's about forced prostitution. It's um, about weapons that um, help crooks to shoot um, uh, civilians. So that is what we have to keep in mind. The price um, is very high. What is, high. what is at stake is very high. So money laundering affects us daily. Yeah, this is such an interesting point to see how the topic of money laundering and these really substantial crimes um, are connected. And I think the journalists who are involved in the ICIJ really make a, a very impressive job of connecting these dots and of making these influences visible. And another question I'd like to ask you refers to the point that Niels raised before, because when I read up on the whole FinCEN files over the week, I came across one point, and I'm really curious to get your take on that. And it was pretty much like a criticism that by publishing uh, these SARS, money launderers might get an idea how to better do it, how to evade detection, maybe to avoid those banks that frequently uh, file those SARS or other ideas that they might get to improve their money laundering scheme. How would you respond to such criticism? Well, that's something we do here regularly. As soon as we as journalists report 
on systematics of basically how money launderers are able to um, evade detection. Or money launderers could, of course, learn something for, out of this reporting. But I think the argument that we are helping money launderers, that is not a fair argument because we raise the awareness that banks and authorities are not looking closely enough. And this should help the public. This should help lawmakers to provide authorities with enough staff, um, with enough money, and it should um, give bankers a better incentive to basically get rid of dubious customers. It's interesting to hear this argument mostly from the banking sector. Um, so I've also read an, an interview this weekend with an expert from an international bank, but it was interesting to see that this expert was not even um, willing to state his name, nor the bank he's working for, but then basically criticized the investigation. Of course, it's easy to criticize an investigation if you don't name your, your bank, the bank you're working for, nor your name. Because, of course, I would have closed closely on the bank that guy is working for and would have spoken about concrete examples of the work of his bank. But this is an, uh, a discussion that bankers so far shy away. They are always referring to, well, we, we can only speak in theoretical terms. We can't speak about details because that's bank secrecy is preventing us from speaking about these cases. But I think we need a debate um, on the details. We need a debate on what is going wrong in the banking sector. And we need a, a debate if it's really the correct approach and the best approach by authorities to always letting banks get away with a fine, but not closing banks completely down if they do repeatedly breach the law. I couldn't agree more with it because what's interesting, um, the way I found out about the FinCEN files was through a friend who was just reading up on it, I think on Guardian, saying like, look, you're interested in corruption. Can you believe this? I mean, it's another case where these higher-ups get away with crimes, right? Previously, it was the Panama Papers showing that the super rich are evading taxes. I mean, I'm simplifying a little bit now. And now, you know, all these massive scheme of money laundering, and it's only a small proportion of it that must be even larger. And in a way, it, me as a researcher that does look at social norms and how they impact corrupt behavior, I was directly thinking, could it be that people start to feel somewhat legitimized to also maybe cheat on their taxes a little bit when they think, well, if those higher-ups are not paying their taxes or are, are laundering money, uh, if these banks are all crooked uh, and nobody is held accountable, why should I be reporting my taxes honestly? Why couldn't I cut corners? And that might be a sort of psychological effect of such revelations. And I just wonder what your take on it is. Well, I mean, that's a completely different topic, but... If you do see a U.S. president only paying $750 in federal taxes a year, I, of course, would understand to a certain extent a normal U.S. citizen from the working class asking him or herself the question, hey, why should I pay my taxes if this president is cutting corners and doing whatever he can to basically not having to pay his taxes? Of course, that's a big problem. I think politicians and institutions like banks should be a good example, should be an example of good behavior. 
And speaking about taxes, hey, most of us do not pay taxes with fun. Of course, it's money that is sometimes missing, money that we could uh, spend on real estate, on vacations, on stuff like that. But we also have to be aware of what, is the, what are the taxes for? Hey, they're used for the roads that we, we drive our car on. They are used to um, build and run hospitals, to build and run universities. They're used to build a childcare facility. So that's something that we have to keep in mind. We have to always keep the connection between like this rather theoretical topics like money laundering, tax evasion, tax um, minimization, and the effect on our everyday life. So that's, that's why I say, hey, FinCEN files is not only about banks and, and, and crooks. Um, it's about criminals. It's about crimes um, that are encouraged because it is so easy to launder money still, although we have those um, scandals already since decades and still you don't see huge and effective steps taken by banks nor authorities. And maybe to follow up on this point, I'm also very interested in the political implications that these revelations might have, because sometimes I feel why I, while I applaud that such revelations show the weaknesses of political and, and private institutions, sometimes my fear is that, as Niels mentioned, these these leaks show such glaring problems and that this might lead to distrust in, in the political system or to apathy or something like this. Do, do you sometimes fear this as well when you publish revelations like this? Of course, I sometimes have in mind that there is politicians, or especially um, right-wing populist politicians who might use the results of such investigations to make their false arguments. But on the other hand side, I think that it is our duty as journalists to reveal wrongdoings. And here is something that is going completely wrong. So we are thereby giving the public the opportunity to build their own opinion and also to push lawmakers. This is what the results of journalism can be used for, to push lawmakers, to push lawmakers to pass stricter laws and to not let getting banks get away with their wrongdoings. So it is public pressure that can be built um, with, with those investigations. Um, but that's not the duty of us as journalists. We can only report what is going wrong. And I must admit, I don't... Or, I do care who is using my investigations to make an argument, but I cannot prevent people who, are, who do have a different political opinion than I do um, to use it. Hey, that's journalism. I can only do my research. I can only investigate um, and then report. And the rest is something that lawmakers and the public can act. I uh, want to pick up on that. It's, a, it's an interesting discussion because let's say when talking to the public, as you're sort of doing right now, what would be an ideal response you would like the public to take? I mean, you're saying they should push lawmakers. Do you have concrete examples of laws that should be drafted or are maybe already in planning phase that you feel like are very promising when it comes to, well, preventing money laundering from existing? Well, there's one, in my opinion, very simple step, and that's step is leading me back to the Panama Papers. Because if you do look at the individual cases of money laundering, 
there's always shell companies involved. There is companies involved in set it up in Cyprus, the BBI, Caymans, uh, or, or Panama that help the crooks to hide behind those shells. And it is easy, as several jurisdictions have already shown, to set up a register with ultimate beneficial owners. A register being open to the public, like it is, for example, in New Zealand, where you can go on a website uh, of the government, type in uh, a person's name and see if this person is owning um, a New Zealand company. If we had such a system in place all around the world, it would be by far more difficult um, for criminals and money launderers. But still, we do see lots of uh, jurisdictions that basically do everything to slow down the process of putting such a system in place. If you look on uh, the country where I live in, Germany, we had, after the Panama Papers, politicians, very famous politicians, stepping up and telling the public, hey, the Panama Papers have to be a wake-up call. Now we need such an UBO register. It needs to be open to the public. That's the step. That is what we can do. And we will pass a Panama Papers law. And now it's four years past. We have something that is called a Panama Papers law. We have kind of a register of UBOs, but there's one big thing that is missing. This register is not open to the public. It is not open to civil society. And I'm regularly using this um, register because it's, as a journalist, I can use it. But I do see there's still hundreds of companies who are not following the obligation to report who's their own. And still, I don't see authorities going after it. So there is, is the point. That's an easy step. You can push your jurisdiction, your government to pass such a law to make such, such a um, register uh, open to the public because so far governments and tax havens uh, are always pointing their fingers on the big Western nations. They're pointing their fingers on countries like the US, like Germany, uh, and saying like, hey, if those countries don't have uh, such a register that is uh, open to the public, why should we? And the more uh, countries that do make such a register open to the public, the less arguments the notorious tax havens um, have to not um, do this step as well. Yeah, this is a very interesting point. Niels and I have been discussing and even writing about this also uh, to yeah, to, to find arguments why these revelations had such limited impact at first. I mean, over the years, you always read up on, on stories where there was an investigation and even a prosecution of people that were involved in Panama Papers or Paradise Papers. But I'm always astounded by why aren't the political actors acting immediately upon such revelations and such shocking displays of malfeasance within the, the private sector, but also in the public sector? That's, that's where lobbying comes into yeah. place. If you follow the process, what basically waters down such a, a law, for example, if you look in Germany, we had a close look. Why was this law watered down in regards to the, this registry? And we saw the lobby, the company's lobby. It was the lobby of so-called family companies. That sounds very sweet and sounds like the, the two-person mom and dad running a, a company. No, that's huge companies in Germany. That's one of some of the biggest companies in Germany are family-run. 
And they opposed this law and did huge, did undertake huge efforts to water down this um, uh, law. And in the end, they were successful, unfortunately, I must say. I would like to, to switch gears a little bit and move away from the FinCEN files and more to, to your role as an investigative journalist. Because as a communication scholar, I see that a lot of newspapers seem to cut down on investigative journalism and that institutions like the ICIJ, which are funded by donations, but also by, by other civil society organizations, and that they take on a role of doing this very resource intensive work that is so necessary yeah, for, the, for the society. Do you have the impression that investigative journalism is is a little bit less valued than it was in the, let's say, the good old days of journalism? Well, I don't completely agree with your assessment. Um, I do see huge financial cuts in journalism in general. I see layoffs at quality outlets all around the world. But still, and that is my silver lining on the horizon, I do see that also there's huge cost cuts and layoffs. I do see that more and more media outlets realize that investigative departments are helping uh, them um, not only to do our contribution to, to democracy, but also to earn money. Because what is investigative journalism? Investigative journalism is revealing something that is not or was not uh, out there in the public yet. That also means that such a news is, if you speak in the controller's uh, language, is a unique selling point. If my newspaper does have an international revelation or is taking part in a revelation like the FinCEN files, we are the only newspaper in Germany where you can read this revelation. You can't read it at our competing um, media outlets. So that is where we do see um, that more and more readers are also willing to pay money for, pay, or pay more money for. After every uh, revelation, we have readers sending us emails, hey, where can we donate money to? Uh, we want to help you. We want to help investigative journalists. And we're like, hey, you don't have to donate money to us. Subscribe. Subscribe to our newspaper, to other quality newspapers. And if you already do have a subscription but still want to help us, Buy a subscription for your cousin, for your nephew, um, for your brother. Help them to appreciate what the watchdog fun function of journalists. Because I think we are living in a time where especially this kind of journalism that is um, not only this he said, she said journalism, but that is digging deep and is trying to reveal what others want to hide is more needed than ever. I think that's a much needed statement as uh, as in the internet there's this uh, everything is for free culture has been established a little bit also when it comes to news that it's very important to point out that there's a lot of work and a lot of resources involved in discovering all these stories and that it's worth paying for it of course. And another point that I would like to, to get your take on is that, that in my courses, once in a while, there's also a, a young student who is motivated to become an investigative journalist, uh, him or herself. Do you have some, some final tips for young journalists who want to, to also do this kind of investigative work? The easy tip is go for it. <laughs> um, is go for it and don't let yourself be slowed down from news that journalism is not an industry that does have a future. I'm convinced that especially investigative journalism does have a future because 
more and more people will realize that there's so much at stake currently. Democracy is at stake in so many countries all around the world that we need journalists who have the time, who have the ability to dig deep and question what politicians, lawmakers, or big companies and, and big money are telling us. I think we are also living in a time where we do see a, a basically investigative journalists might do see a, a shift in, in the approaches. And like 20 years ago, the investigative journalist was normally a 50 plus white male working alone in his office, smoking and drinking and not telling anyone uh, what he's doing because um, he wants to keep his scoop. But that's the old times. We are now living in a times where, especially in those international um, collaborations, you're working in very diverse teams, old, young, black, white, Asian, Western. So that that's so cool um, and it makes so much fun. And you also do see that, or I do see that young journalists who are coming fresh from university, but have, for example, data skills, who know how to deal with bigger amounts of data, or even, or if it's only to who know how to deal with Excel spreadsheets. That's something that many journalists of older ages don't even know. But that's like basic skills you need to know. And that's basically a chance for young journalists to get their foot into the door. I, for example, work with colleagues just after traineeship, started in our investigative team because during the Panama Papers, they have proven that they have a set of skills that older colleagues don't have. And that was their chance. That was their opportunity. And now they're working, we're working side by side and they are a normal part of the team. So I think there is a future. There is a future um, for young journalists. I here explicitly want to encourage um, women to choose this part journalism, investigative journalism isn't the white 50 plus male anymore. It's a, a field where there's a, a, a place for, for women. I think we need more women in investigative journalism and we need young women because they're adding expertise and oftentimes they're adding to a better work atmosphere. <laughs> that's also uh, an important point. Yeah, that's a, a great way to, to end this podcast, you've been very generous with your time. And um, what we usually do at the end of the podcast is ask our guests for a pick of the podcast. So this could be a book, a movie, a novel, a paper, maybe a newspaper article, anything that you feel like would be worth reading for our listeners. What, what is your pick of the podcast, Frederick? Well, I think one thing is I still, although it's a very old movie, I like All the President's Men and I love uh, Spotlight. Um, those are two amazing movies that encourage you to go into journalism because that's what journalism is about. It's sometimes those movies display what it is. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's stressful. But in the end, it's worth it um, because we can reveal something um, that is important for the public. So I can only recommend those films. This is such a great way to end the podcast, Patrick. Thank you so much that you found the time for us today to talk about these very pressing issues and uh, to, to let us in on the work of an investigative journalist. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot also from my side. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. If you want to learn more about the work of Frederik and his colleagues at ICIJ, 
Check out the previous interview with him which focuses on the Panama Papers and the revelations surrounding the Austrian politician Hans Christian Strache. The case is also referred to as the Ibiza video. For more on the FinCEN files, check out the show notes of this episode and also go to Matthew's blog where he has shared some preliminary thoughts. You can find them at www.globalanticorruptionblog.com. If you want to get updates about Kickback, follow us on Facebook and Twitter under @kickbackgap. We are a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Kickback is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time.